0: I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way.
1: And the second reading this morning is from John chapter 20 to the end of the chapter. and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you, may, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, Peter, God. And thank you, Ella. Stunningly read. Thank you. Hey, um, from my family to yours, happy Easter. Hope you have a wonderful weekend. Such tantalizing texts inviting you to believe something remarkable. I'll explore these things in just a moment. But what we don't want from you today is for you to hear these words and say, that was interesting, but not ask what's next, and in particular, what's next for you. And that vein, before I pray and explore these passages, I've got three gifts that you can take home today. Firstly, you can take home a Bible. I've got this woman who donates them at 8.30, and she says to me, Justin, you're not giving enough of these away. I get busted re- regularly. So help me by taking a Bible. And here's my test for you. Those of you who've been here for a while know my test. If you know right now, in your mind, that entering your front door, you couldn't locate an easy-to-read English Bible, you say to yourself, oh, I know it. It's in a back room, below some books. on a Forget it. Take one start reading it. Take the jacket off, good fun, go straight to John's Gospel and begin reading it, and I'll explain why in the message why that's a good book to start with in a moment's time. Paul White, who, whose job it is to want you to believe these things, texted me this morning and said, I've got books to give away. Is Jesus' history going to be important for the second part of my message in a few moments' time? You say, I've got doubts. Paul Bennett, John Nixon will help you in that space, or if you think do I really want to believe in Jesus? Is there something good here to believe in? A Doubter's Guide to Jesus, also by John Dixon, is also there, and you can take them on your way out. Just have a look at them. Is this a book that's going to help me with the things I hear now? Shall we pray? Do you want to pray? Do people want to pray? I would. Let's pray. Matthew Bridges wrote, Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Father, breathe your spirit on us and in us now. Awaken our souls, cause us to sing of him who died for me. He is our risen and matchless king. Amen. Vinnie, Vidi Vici, it's a Latin phrase, you know it. It's attributed to Julius Caesar. I came, I saw, I conquered, indicating the ease and swiftness of a particular victory. Caesar, some might say, is Lord. It would not be a stretch to apply those words to another Lord, to Jesus Christ, as Messiah. God came, that's the Christmas story. God saw, that's the Gospels. God conquered sin and indeed death itself. He dealt with God's just judgment. He reversed the curse of the Garden of Eden and he did it from another garden, a quiet garden near Jerusalem. That's the Easter story. He rose from the dead. And I believe it with all my heart. In fact, I'm going to say in a few moments' time, I have to believe it. I have no other alternative. Jesus did all this to bring peace, not the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which was wrought by threat of the sword, but rather the peace that surpasses all understanding, wrought by his own blood. That's love, not the blood of others. And achieved by his resurrection. But Christ's victory, however, unlike Julius Caesar's, was by no means easy or swift. Christ's victory was done slowly, achieved agonizingly. Jesus died. On page seven, you can read the account following Jesus' death in John 19, verse 38. Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, gets together with Nicodemus, interestingly, they approached Pilate for the dead body of Jesus, and we read these words, taking Jesus' body, the two of them, these two blokes, they wrapped the body with the spices that Nicodemus had brought in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, a quiet garden, and in the garden, a new tomb which no one had ever been laid, and they laid Jesus there in the tomb. It was Friday night. And yet before sunrise on Sunday, sometime before sunrise on Sunday, something happened. Something happened that fundamentally changed the world. Something happened in that garden, and we have to work out what happened. We have no record in the Gospels of the moment itself, the moment of Christ's second first breath. This is how it gets reported in John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, that Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She assumes the body has been misplaced or even stolen. John 20, verse 2. She tells Peter and the disciple Jesus loved, probably the author of the Gospel, John. Peter and John rush to the tomb, verse 3. John outruns Peter, but just pokes his head into the tomb, verse 4. He sees Nicodemus' strips of cloth, but doesn't go in, in verse 5, Peter does what Peter always does, he rushes in, I like Peter. He goes in both feet, verse 6, and then in verse 8, John then follows Peter into the tomb, and we read these simple words, he saw the empty tomb, the strips of cloth, and believed, he believed without understanding they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. If you know Jewish Scripture, resurrection has to happen. And so we have an empty tomb, (laughs) and with it the call to believe that God raised Jesus in some sort of victory. But some of us here this morning are left a little like John, maybe believing, but certainly not understanding. Something happened, so what happened? What to make of the empty tomb of Jesus? This morning, I have something for the head, something for the heart, and something for the hands. None of this is knockdown proofs for what you're about to hear, but a door, perhaps, for you. So, I've got, if you're following the outline, which is printed on page nine, something for the head, Can I believe in a resurrection? Is it even possible to believe in a resurrection? I'm going to go outside John's Gospel for for that question. I've got something for the heart. Do I need this resurrection? Like, my heart needs love. I'm going to go to John 20, verses 11 to 18. And then something for the hands. You want to touch a resurrected body, and you'll only believe if you get to see or, or touch a resurrection. Can I? They're my three questions today. So, firstly, something for your head, your brains. Can I believe in a resurrection? And the answer is, yes, you can. You might not want to, but yes, you can. Some of you are thinking, no, I can't. No, I won't. And that's because resurrection can't happen. It contradicts, you might say, the second law of thermodynamics, the law of increasing entropy. You and I both know that dead people disintegrate. They don't come back to life. And some of us who are like this, well, it won't matter what I say next. You believe in science, as if science were a person to believe in. But like Thomas, you believe your eyes, and no one comes back to life. I just want to acknowledge the weight of your concern in fact it seems obvious to me the scientific method will not help you with the resurrection by the way like it won't help you with almost anything else supremely valuable in life like love no thoughtful christian no thoughtful believer in the resurrection will deny the power of your problem you've got one And yet, it's worth saying, millions of intelligent people believe. Across all the world, here in this church, five congregations, scientists in this room, believe. If you join the Alpha Course, in fact, I think it's the first week, the one that you'd come to even before you commit to the ten, list dozens of scientists who believe believe. Can I invite you to join that course? Why? How do they believe? Well, these intelligent people do two things. First, they allow for an open system in the universe, rather than a closed one. They allow for the existence of a God or God. A materialist starts with a closed system. There's only matter, material and matter always follows laws, and since there's no God, there are only laws of nature, and that's why you can't believe. You can't believe because you discount God as an agent. You only have this, so there can't be a resurrection. But, if a person allows for, opens the door to the possibility that there is a God, just the possibility, God as powerful, God is engaged, God is loving, God is involved, a God who indeed holds all things together, then you are open then, you must be open, by necessity, open to the possibility of what one might call the impossible. You open up your heart to miracles, you open up your heart to mystery, I believe you open up your heart to life, rather than death, up rather than down, eternal life, rather than judgment, you are then open to hope, not despair. You are open to wonder, not banality. Not just, this is as good as it gets. The second thing that those intelligent people are open to is the possibility that God has a narrative that He has spoken or woven, a story that He's got for the world. They're open to the possibility that this God has made promises over a thousand years to deal with death, The possibility that God might enter the story, write the story and enter the story, that He has made a covenant with His people long ago. We opened our service today with Isaiah 25 in the exile, 700 years before Christ came. On this mountain, the one outside Jerusalem, Mount Zion, God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations, that is death, and He will swallow up death forever. That's in the story. That's, of course, why Lazarus was raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul was speaking to King Agrippa, a Jewish king who held Jewish hopes from the Jewish scriptures, and he explains why he's on trial. He said he's on trial for the things Jewish people have always believed, the claim that God had promised it. He says to Agrippa, why should any of you here consider it incredible that God raises the dead. We're open to God, therefore open to the possibility, and we're certainly open to the story that God has promised to deal with death. I'm only saying, said Paul, what God said would happen. Jesus talked to the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, and he said, and this puts my point simply, although I don't use Jesus to support my point. Let me be clear on that. Jesus says, perfectly, I think, You are in error, he says to the Pharisees, because you don't know the Scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. He always promised it, and you're open to him being able to do it. Can I believe in the resurrection? Well, many won't. Jesus said to Thomas, because you've seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed." In John 20 verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not recorded in this book, lots are recorded in the book, not all of them, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, right, not Julius, but Jesus, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Can you locate a Bible within two minutes of walking into your front door? Take it, Read John's Gospel first. Okay, maybe your head battles, but your heart cries out. A word for the heart, do I want or even need this resurrection? And I think the answer is yes, we all do, because the resurrection answers a universal need, you could argue the only universal need. People suffer in all sorts of ways, and yet 100% of us will go to the grave. In verses 11 to 18, you get this beautiful, heartfelt exchange between Mary and what, who she perceives to be the gardener in the garden. Peter and John see the empty tomb, and they go back to tell their friends that the tomb is empty, leaving Mary Magdalene, the first to see Jesus. In verse 11, Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. She's crying. It tells you something about her heart. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two messengers, two angels from God, in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her simply, woman, why are you crying? They knew something that would stop the tears. They knew some answer for her heart, tears. She's crying because she believes someone has stolen the body of Jesus, desecrated his tomb and his body, but also because she loves him. She's put a hope in him, which is a pretty pretty confusing time. But her tears, her weeping, for me, as I read it, are the same or similar tears that we all shed at grief when we lose something or when we lose someone, we we love, when we are disorientated by some grave injustice, because that's how Mary feels. Her tears are my tears, as I hate sin, and abuse, and injustice, and, and indeed death itself, theologically in the Bible, all wrapped together. The resurrection is something our heart needs, not just because it satisfies the longing that arises out of loss or death, but because it answers the deepest questions we all have. Is there meaning in life, or is it just a decay to the grave? Is there purpose? Does God care? Does God love me? Is there life? Is there eternal life? When Jesus died, their hopes were dashed. But look at verse 14 on page 8. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realise that it was Jesus. Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Same question as the messengers, the angels. Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. You know, context. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will go and get him. I'll lug him back. And Jesus then uses her name. Jesus said to her, Mary, so personal. In his book, Raised Forever, Perth Pastor Rory Shiner talks about explanations for the empty tomb. You know, someone must have stolen the body. Well, why didn't the Romans produce it to nip this movement in the bud? Perhaps the disciples took it, uh, but were the Romans that relaxed? Maybe Jesus is revived after being knocked around a bit on the tomb. That's, you know. Rory points, points out that something happened in the garden, and he goes for an explanation. What happened? He writes these words, somewhat cheekily. He says, the Christian claim that Jesus was raised from his tomb in the body. That's the claim. On the surface, this seems so unlikely as to be dismissed. The last explanation you can imagine Indeed, it did not immediately commend itself even to the first witnesses. They, didn't be, they struggled to believe. However, once we carefully examine the actual evidence, the Christian claim starts to emerge like Australian speed skater Steve Bradbury. In the 2002 winter Olympics, strangely ahead, if only because everyone else fell over, there is simply no other explanation that works Steve Bradbury the Australian that no one would thought would win coming in last please youtube it for yourself it's a glorious 3 minutes of joy Steve Bradbury wins the gold medal because it turns out to be the only one left standing I also think the Bradbury response that this is the only explanation left standing applies to your heart questions too The disciples said to Jesus in John chapter 6, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Tell me someone else who has an answer that's close. Show it to me. I'm willing, by the way, I want to read your book. I'm willing to believe that somebody else has a better answer. My heart demands the resurrection. My soul won't rest without it. For those of you who care, and that's none of you, on my Facebook page, in my About section, I identify as dust. That's who I am, going to the grave. But I'm confident in the resurrection. Jesus asks me, man, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? I'm looking for Jesus. We need that tomb to be empty, our tears demand it. But let's return to empiricism, to observation. Can I believe, let's go to Thomas and his hands, his eyes. So my third question is, can I, for the, word for the hands, can I see or touch a resurrection? The answer is no, you can't. Well, not that I know of. <laughs> you want to touch a resurrection because you say, well, if I could have better proof, I might believe. Every time I read John chapter 20, I, well, every time I think about resurrection, I spare a thought for Thomas. He was not in the room where it happened. In verse 19, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, not Thomas, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom Elohim, peace be with you. He's offering peace, peace that surpasses understanding. After this, he showed them his hands and his sides, still bloodied. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord, and later by the way, willing to give up their lives. Have you ever seen the movie Risen? It's a good Easter film. You know, I was doubtful, but I saw it. Um, but it's a good Easter film, because they come away from it excited that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and all the political machinations of those people trying to stop it can't stop their smiles. It's of a different order, this sort of hope. But Thomas was out of the room, so Thomas then becomes the everyman in many ways. He becomes the a priori guy, the guy who says, ahead of time, I'm not going to believe, dead men don't raise, they can't. He also becomes the a posteriori guy, he says, "I, I won't believe until after I see the body. He has to experience Jesus to believe it. He says to them in verse 24, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, verse 26, Jesus turns up risen from the dead and first item of business is Thomas. A little bit like Mary, so personal. In verse 27, he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, we don't know whether Thomas actually did this. But Thomas reaches the only theological conclusion. He says, my Lord and my God. This is my King. And indeed, this is my God, second person of the Trinity. And then he makes it personal. And in doing so, we're invited to make it personal. Thomas said, my Lord and My God. And the invitation is that we do the same. Remember the point of John's testimony? These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, not Julius as Caesar, but Jesus as Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That you too might become a disciple of Jesus. That is, spending a life sitting at Jesus' feet and learning, saying, He's the rabbi. Drinking His living water because I'm thirsty. Eating the bread of life because I'm hungry. Abiding in the vine because life doesn't exist detached from the life source. Worshipping Jesus Christ and saying, My Lord and my God. C.S. Lewis, famous for Narnia series, wrote this. He said, Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. Vini, vidi, vici. Everything is different because he has done so. There is then an eternal Messiah, unlike all the despots and bullies. There is an eternal hope, different from all the guesswork and wishing. There is an eternal joy, which is deeper than indeed happiness itself. And there is a power at work in those who believe. God has entered our broken and divided world, and he's put it back together. God loves the world. He wants it back. That's what the resurrection's about. Christians call it salvation. You know, I used to think that Thomas was the blessed one because he got confirmation. And I don't know about you, but I'd like confirmation. But not so. Jesus says, You're blessed if you believe without seeing. Jesus said to to Thomas, Because you've seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You too will see a resurrection with your own eyes. Paul will say the resurrection is the first fruits of many. This is the future of humanity, not the grave, but a renewed earth. You'll touch resurrected bodies. This is our hope. You could be one of the blessed ones simply by praying a prayer with me. And I'm going to pray that prayer now. And if you do pray that prayer, I've got options for you. A Bible, go to John's Gospel first, two minutes couple of books by john dixon emma and i would love to pray with you (laughs) and i'll be up the back and you said you come to me and you say i want to pray with you i did it by the way i was about 10 years old i thought i've been raised a christian but i'm not sure if i've taken it seriously enough just wasn't sure so i sat down to pray with someone i could tell you where i was what i was like do you want to pray If you do, say amen at the end. Let's pray. Father, we say here and now, Christ is Lord and there is no other Lord. There's no Caesar, no king, no prime minister, no president, no dictator, no boss. No one else to truly fear and no one else in which to place our hopes. You came, you saw, you conquered. God, you came, you were in Christ, that humble birth in that stable, revealing your humble heart, oh God, you came, you saw, we can read your life, the way you lived, the way you loved, the way you treated people tenderly, especially those with tender consciences, especially those suffering, especially those oppressed, and you conquered. You conquered sin, you conquered death, you conquered the injustice, you did it by dying, not by taking life, but by giving up your own life. You did it by love, and you did it by walking out of that garden tomb, giving us, from that day on, hope Let no one caught in sin remain inside the lie of inward shame, but fix our eyes on the, upon the cross and run to Him who showed great love and bled for us. We say Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake. Come awake. Come and rise up from the grave. Amen.